It's time to think differently about healthcare, but how do we keep up? The days of yesterday's medicine are long gone, and we're left trying to figure out where to go from here. With all the talk about politics and technology, it can be easy to forget that healthcare is still all about humans. And many of those humans have unbelievable stories to tell. Here, we leave the policy debates to the other guys and focus instead on the people and ideas that are changing the way we address our health. It's time to navigate the new landscape of healthcare together and hear some amazing stories along the way. Ready for a breath of fresh air? It's time for your Paradigm Shift. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift of Healthcare, and thank you for listening. I'm Michael Roberts with my co-hosts, Jared Johnson and Scott Zeitzer. On today's episode, we're talking to Craig Antico, a former healthcare debt collection industry executive. In 2014, Mr. Antico went on to become a co-founder of RIP Medical Debt, a nonprofit organization that buys medical debt portfolios from hospitals and physician groups with donated money to alleviate the debt of those who simply can't pay. Mr. Antico, it's such an honor. Thank you for being on our show today. Thanks for inviting me. It's so wonderful to hear your story. I came across your story recently on social media, just the organization story. One of the first things that that come to mind is what led you and your co-founder to start RIP Medical Debt? As collectors and collection agency owners, there's no way we would have come up with this idea because when we first heard it, we thought it was the dumbest thing we'd ever heard. (laughs) We thought buying medical debt, at least the the nonprofit that started it thought they'd raise about $50,000 and buy a million dollars of debt. And that million dollars they were going to abolish and they wanted to know what we thought about it. And we just didn't see how a million dollars was going to make an impact on an industry that produces, God, now it's about $200 billion a year of debt that people can't pay. So we thought $1 million wouldn't be enough of an impact. So they said, well, can we give you a different perspective? And we we said, sure. And they said, well, we don't think people should have to go bankrupt just if they get ill or have an accident. And we were like, yeah, that's a good point. And uh, this nonprofit went on to abolish about $30 million of debt, you know, all kinds of debt, not just medical debt. Mm. And then they decided to just stop abruptly at the end of 2013 And Jerry and I looked at each other and said, you know, we can't let this happen. There's too many people being helped. But we think that medical debt, which is a different kind of debt, you know, we should help just abolish that. And so we started that on January 1st of 2014, and we've been trucking along ever since. It's really just amazing. You basically changed what you were doing for a living and used the knowledge of debt collection and the knowledge that well, there are a lot of people in need and figured out how to put that to good, so to speak. Yeah, it is a miracle because I never liked the industry of collecting debt, especially collecting medical debt, because medical debt is half of all the debt in this country that's collected by collection agencies is medical. Unbelievable. So there's 100,000 100, collectors, 50,000 of them are collecting medical debt. And it's one of the hardest things to collect because a lot of the people that you have to collect on like for the hospitals, for example, 30% of those patients that are called by collection agencies, actually, they um, qualified for the hospital's charity care. Mm. And they just didn't accept it or didn't qualify in their own way. Uh, it's just sad. So um, we are very fortunate that we changed hats and are now debt forgivers. We call ourselves predatory givers. <laughs> I like that. Predatory <laughs> givers. So... 
you make this major decision for yourselves in, in terms of, hey man, we're going to change what we do. How do you go and get money to go do what you need to go do? I heard the name John Oliver before we got on the call. Maybe you could kind of let us in a little bit on that as well. Sure. You need awareness first. Um, the only way that anybody is going to be able to donate to you is if they know about you. So we were fortunate about two and a half years into our journey you know, of going into poverty ourselves. We got put on the John Oliver show last week tonight with John Oliver, the HBO special show. And he donated $15 million of debt to us on his show because he couldn't do it as a nonprofit. He started his own nonprofit. He started his own debt buying company. He bought debt. And then the HBO lawyers for the next six months were like, how are you going to do this? This is people's private information. You can't abolish the debt on TV. Then it will be a tax liability for the people that you're abolishing the debt for. And so for six or seven months, they couldn't put on the show. And they were just fortunate enough to hear about us through one of our attorneys. So that's a good thing because over 14 million people have seen that show, that particular show. So we still get calls of people wanting to know about us because of that show that happened in 2016. But we were terrible before that at raising money. Uh, I think we raised $3,000 in the first year. We were just horrific. We knew how to buy debt, how to value it. We Mm. knew how to send out tens and tens of thousands of letters a day, but we did not know how to raise money. It's one of the hardest things we ever did, but we're getting better at it. We doubled our donations this year to $12 million. And the year before that, we doubled them. We abolished $1 billion of medical debt in 2019 alone. Wow. That's just incredible. You know, from a pure, maybe you can give me an average. What does, if I donated a dollar to RIP, what can you buy debt-wise with that? Well, every dollar. All of our costs in, we can abolish over a hundred dollars of debt for that one dollar. Ten thousand abolishes a million. Whatever you donate, and that's what you you can use that as a a leverage to abolish that much more debt. Every dollar. Go. You either go from the amount that you want abolished, a million. You take off two zeros, and that's ten thousand. Or you say, I want to I want to give a hundred bucks, and you you add two zeros to it, ten thousand dollars. It's extraordinary. So everybody who is listening to this, we are going to have some links that y'all can click on if you decide that this is something that makes sense. Uh, we'll get those links up there. Maybe we'll have the link to uh, Mr. Oliver's show as well. I think that's uh, perfectly uh, okay. Can you talk to us specifically about whom RIP Medical Debt seeks to serve, like who qualifies for this, how you figure out how to uh, apply this? Sure. The way that we apply it is this. It's based on low income and hardship. And the way that we define low income is do you make, does your household make two times the federal poverty level or less? So two times the federal poverty level or less. And then hardship is a little harder to define. So what we've come up with, and we found that this is Based on research, if people start spending more than 2.5% of their gross income on out-of-pocket medical expenses, they go into hardship. Now, we thought 25 was a little too low, so we picked 5%. So if the debt that we're abolishing is equal to 5% of their gross income or more, 
or if the debt that we're abolishing plus any other debt they have that's on their credit reports or in judgment, we add those two together and we find, is it more than 5% of their gross income? And the second way that we do hardship is, are they insolvent? Because 15 million people a year go insolvent. You know, they have more debt than they have assets. 15 million people a year are going insolvent and they're not the lucky ones. The lucky ones are the 600,000 that go bankrupt because it's the most, you know, the highest, uh, no, it's not the highest. It's, it's the main reason why people go bankrupt is because of medical. Wow. You know, guys, Jared, uh, I know you've got some questions as well, but the three of us are all pro- are just shaking our heads at this gargantuan problem that needs to be attacked. And the fact that you guys are out there doing that, again, we will have links up for people who need help or for people who want to help in this process. Jared, I know you're, you're dying to get some questions in as well. Yeah, Craig, I know we when we look at uh, GoFundMe, for example, this is something that that's fascinating. We've seen some some stats that that your group has provided about explaining the severity of medical debt in America, and uh, particularly, uh, there's some interesting information about GoFundMe. And I thought these stats, I mean, they blew my mind. For instance, the the one about in 2015, it was found that 930 million dollars of the two billion dollars that was raised on GoFundMe in that year or actually or that was raised on GoFundMe since its launch in 2010. So 930 million of the $2 billion had been related to medical bills, yet barely one in 10 medical campaigns raises the necessary funds. That was a crazy stat for me to kind of wrap my mind around. And then the other one that I saw from you guys about how one in three GoFundMe fundraisers are for medical bills, according to CEO Rob Solomon. Those things are just kind of, I mean... We hear big numbers all the time, but those are things that are just, I mean, that tells me that this is something that no wonder we talk about it a lot, but we don't know what to do. It feels like people are, are they're obviously willing to help others in medical need, but it's not proving to be enough. I'd love to hear what, just what, what you think about that and, and how you guys raise money to help clear debt, you know, based on, on stats like that, because again, they just kind of blow my mind. You've got a good point. When that much is coming into a, a crowdfunding site, you will not believe this next figure that I'm going to tell you is that 55 billion with a B is lent or given to friends and family for medical debt a year. (laughs) Yeah, 55 billion. That's just completely unbelievable. And then they add another 68 to 88 billion dollars a year on their credit cards and other debt just to pay the medical debt that they're responsible for. And people in the hospital side, people can only pay about 55% of their responsibility. So the self-pay piece is the people that don't have insurance, about 10% of our population. That self-pay piece, they can only pay about 55% of it. The balance after insurance, people can only pay about 55% of it. And it leaves for, this is for hospitals alone, it leaves $200 billion this year that they can't pay, that are going to have to be paid by through a collection agency or a lawsuit or a garnishment. And one and a half percent of the people that work in this country have a garnishment for medical debt on their income or on their bank account. So you mentioned that the raising funds, that that was one of the bigger challenges that you've had to do. Like there, there's the entire debt buying piece, but then there's the raising funds cover things. Tell us about some of the challenges there in raising the money. 
We now don't have a problem with raising money. It's very odd. We have hundreds of churches that come to us now. Churches abolished over $500 million of debt last year. We have lots of people that are coming from media and putting on campaigns themselves. We have nurses. Nurses are coming to abolish debt. Doctors get together and abolish debt. Individuals, high net worth individuals, and you know, people that give $5. It's quite amazing. I think last week we raised $500,000 in a week. It's like yeah, a, guys, just put that in its place. Like, so $500,000, add the two zeros, right? We're talking $50 million. $50 million. It's, it's such a dramatic impact. I think we got a $3 million donation the other day from a, you know, a foundation because they know that they can't make an impact like this anywhere. You know, we, we've helped 700,000 people get out of debt. So it's, um, as it gets known more and more, you know, we've never ever gone out to ask for donations. Hmm. We've never asked for donations. It just keeps growing and growing and growing by word of mouth. And that's a, that's a wonderful way to grow because people just are so excited that their $1 can turn into $100. So, I mean, we have to start getting more proactive in our giving and our, our asking, but it just keeps coming. And, you know, we're just growing. It's such a, such a great clip. Yeah, I have a quick question for you. Your background in being a debt collector, does it help you negotiate better when you're trying to use the funds that you have to knock out debt? You know, I don't try to negotiate too much, which is interesting. I'm not trying to get the lowest price because the hospitals, they actually need to make some money too, right? They're, they're losing so much so much and it, it never qualifies them in the charity care they give because a lot of times people do not accept charity care they're proud they think they're going to be able to do it they're over optimistic on how well they're going to be able to handle the illness and the debt so they don't ask for help people are just won't ask for help because there's a stigma to the debt or asking for help there's a stigma to the illness and what we're trying to do is you know we could go to a hospital and say to them donate all this debt there's just no reason why the debt should even be there. You should be donating it and letting us tell the people that the debt is forgiven so that they don't have this on their head. But we don't have to do that because we have donors that care and why not support the hospitals? There's even debt buyers that buy as investors. Now, they are a great channel for us to find debt, but only about a third of the hospitals sell their debt. So the, what we do know is what the value is of the portfolio. So that is the key. If we didn't know the value, then we'd be overpaying without even our knowledge, right? We have tremendous knowledge on how much these portfolios are worth. And the way that you price a portfolio in the debt buying industry is you take, you take a $100 million portfolio and you forecast how much you're going to collect on that portfolio over the next five to 10 years, that far out. Let's say you think you're going to collect $15 million out of that $100 million. You're going to pay about a third of that forecasted amount that you're going to collect. And that's practically it. You can't go much lower than two and a half times. Like now that I know that I'm going to buy that for $5 million, well, I better collect at least two and a half to three times that amount that I paid because I have to pay the collection agency, which charges a third. I have to pay the bank that I borrowed the money from because I got to borrow 90% of that portfolio's price 
from a bank, specialty finance company. So then I have to pay all of the interest to that bank and the interest to my you know, investors that I've brought in. And then the residual happens after three or four years. Now, I can go to a debt buyer and tell them, why would you want to collect on this debt for the next five to 10 years when I can tell you the patients that can't pay and will never pay and they meet my criteria and I'll pay you for them. And they're like, what? You'll pay for these accounts? I said, yes, I'll pay for them. Even though they're not able to resell them, you know what they're going to do? They're going to hold on to those accounts for 10 years. They're going to keep checking the credit rating, keep seeing if there's anything happening in that person's life. And as soon as they buy a car, as soon as they get a, you know, start a job, bang, they're going to start collecting on them again, even if it's five, six, seven, eight, ten years. And I want to get rid of that, that long tail of collections. Even though I'm paying less than a penny, it actually is stopping debt being collected on for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people. So I don't mind paying a little bit to help a lot of people. Craig, there's so much that you're bringing up here that's just absolutely fascinating. And one of the things that one of the things that I found really compelling about your organization's story is, you know, we're recording this while democratic debates are going on, while obviously the, just the healthcare conversation is just a huge, how do we pay for this? That conversation is just a mega part of politics right now. And so much of that overlooks the fact that people are struggling with this right now in ways that you're clarifying for us even more. One of the things that I found fascinating about what you just said was that people aren't willing to accept or they aren't applying for charity care more often because one of the things that I've thought about with this, you know, years ago, we definitely, my family definitely went through some challenges with being able to pay for medical care, being able to pay for a chronic patient in our family and trying to figure out that whole scenario and what that looks like. And one of the things I was frustrated with at the time was I didn't know about some of the options that were available for being able to work with our state funding and some of that kind of stuff to, to be able to afford this stuff better. One of the things that I felt was more people just need to be aware of the options out there. And you're showing this other side of, hey, some people are aware and even aren't choosing to follow through with that. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how patients are interacting with that, what their that process of being of not wanting to take on that that charity. I talked with and I worked with AARP and we went into an innovative process with them to come up with new products, new services that could help the people. And when we were putting up on the board all the things that we could do in this incredible workshop that we're working in, I noticed nowhere did I see Medicaid, for example. Mm. And I said, wow, I wonder, wonder why that is. There's nobody here on Medicaid that has a problem. Well, that's because they're taken care of. They've got, that's the best insurance you could ever have, Medicaid. Now, you go and Medicare now, then you go to Medicare. Now, there is a lot of Medicare that doesn't get paid, but it's such a small percentage of, of the debt that's outstanding, that's, you know, that re- people are responsible for. The people that have insurance now, and we went from about 20% of the people not having insurance to about 10% of the people not having insurance. And when they got insurance, it all of a sudden changed the question that was asked to them at registration. They now had insurance. So why should we offer them charity care? 
so they didn't take it. And the amount of charity care dropped after Obamacare from about two and a half percent of a hospital's expenses to about, I guess, 1.6% of a hospital's expenses. That's a tremendous drop. Now, what's odd is that the main criteria that a hospital picks for giving someone charity care or not is very similar to us. RIP says anybody that makes less than two times the poverty level gets charity care. Well, that's exactly the same that most financial assistance policies are at hospitals. And the craziest thing is that one third of this population makes less than two times the poverty level, but only 1.6% of a hospital's expenses go to charity care. Now, what? Right. What? Yeah, that, that is a what. <laughs> you know, it's that misnomer about, yes, I have insurance, but what kind of insurance do I have? The biggest problem that we're having now, because people have insurance, is that they've now become uninsured or underinsured. Because as the deductibles increased, they now take on the first dollar up to maybe $3,000. So you might be uninsured. It's very easy to tell those people. But underinsured means, is your deductible equal to 5% of your gross income? And that can happen pretty quickly. You make $50,000. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, all I have to have is a deductible of $2,500 to be underinsured. So there's 68 million of those people that are either uninsured or underinsured. And those are the people that are the highest at risk. Let, let me interject something there for a second. I think it's important everybody remember that. So if there's any be- people out there listening who are patients, potential patients, what was that specific number about being underinsured? What was the percentage of your salary, of your gross salary? If your gross income is 5%. That's a very important number. So if you're, whatever you make, it, it, listening out there, just make it, of that number, and if your deductible is that number or higher, you're underinsured. Now, you may have to deal with that. Like, that may be the best you can do, but you need to be aware of that. That's part one. And then part two, when you do, heaven forbid, have to go go to the hospital because of an accident or uh, some sort of medical problem, whatever that is, Remember that number, like I am underinsured. So when they start, they may ask or not ask. That's a great thing to be aware of. It's like, yeah, I'm underinsured. My deductible is very high. I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. The hospital will start talking to you. They may not ask you the question because they're just not programmed correctly with these major changes occurring. I mean, I don't think hospitals are hiding. I think they just don't know what to say and how to say it. And I think that it's incumbent upon Patience to remember that 5% number, critical. You know, I just went to the orthopedic surgeon with my son, had a back problem, he's a football player. Okay. And we're in there and I couldn't get in touch with my healthcare provider, my um, insurance provider. So I'm in there kind of blind on a vacation day. And now I have to ask every single question about how much this is going to cost. And my son's looking at me like, oh, God, why are you asking about the cost? Oh, my God. Because we're responsible for the first $3,000 of whatever this is. Right. So I'm, now, the good thing is I put $8,000 into my HSA, my health savings account, because I know that my deductible is higher 
than I normally had. But I chose that. I could have chosen a smaller deductible and a higher cost monthly, but I chose to have a higher deductible, which fortunately isn't 5% of my gross income, thank goodness, but it's still a big nut to have to yep. have. So I asked, and I found that the MRI is going to cost $950. I'm glad I asked the question. Yeah. People do not ask the question. And the people in the office don't even know. I had to go to two or three people before I could get the right answer. Yeah, that, and that's the other, that's part of the insanity of the whole setup with, without getting, again, too crazy about all this. Asking questions about cost can be very helpful. I have a friend of mine needed to get a mammogram, a second mammogram for a, uh, a, what could have potentially been a problem, but luckily was not one. And she just went and called a few different people and said, what do you charge for this specific mammogram? And the, cheap, the cost differences were incredible. Wow. Um, we're not even talking about saying, you know what, I need to get one and I can't afford it. So again, I'll go back to everybody like, look, the people on this phone call are lucky enough to make a choice. There are a lot of people who don't have that ability to make a choice. And being open and asking that as soon as you can will be very helpful. Uh, how do providers, you know, uh, you mentioned the orthopedic surgeon. How do some of the providers feel about this service that you're providing? You mentioned sometimes doctors are coming to you to help abolish debt. You know, they love it, actually. They have so much debt. It's about twenty-five dollars to $35,000 per doctor per year that they don't collect. It's a significant amount of money that goes by. And many of them want to donate the debt, but they can't donate the debt because what's the craziest thing of all is that the tax laws say if they donated the debt, it would become income because they're on a cash basis. They don't want to yep. show income when they earn it. They want to show income when they collect it. So now if they donate it, doing the best thing for a patient, they have to show income based on the gross amount that they charged. And then they'll have to do some crazy thing and take it off their taxes on the back end. But why would they go through that hassle? So I end up buying it for you know a small percentage. If a doctor's office wanted to sell their debt to us, their assets of debt, I might pay them a very handsome amount for the current debt and pay them practically nothing for their old debt. That might be fair to them. I'd be open to talking to any doctor, any medical group, and figure a way to give them what they need so that these patients could get what they need. Because these doctors don't have charity care. It used to be that uh, Marcus Welby, is that how you say it? Marcus Welby? <laughs> yes, I'm old enough to know it's Marcus Welby, you young people. Yes, that's how Marcus you say it. Marcus Welby, MD, yep. go to the patients door to door, and he knew his patients. And yes. if he knew that they were out of work, he didn't charge them. And it's just not able to be done anymore. It's illegal to not get paid. It's, it's exactly what he's saying. I was going to say that. It's actually illegal. Now, now let's walk through that. So if an orthopedic surgeon, you just mentioned walking into the orthopedic surgeon's office, had $1,000 worth of debt, they can't just let it go. There's a lot of tax consequences and, and legal issues they need to deal with. But if you bought the debt at $100 instead of at $1,000, they could write off that loss. Is that correct? No, actually. Oversimplifying it? No, they couldn't write off the loss. What it is is in a practice, a, a healthcare practice, and I'm not talking about large medical groups because large medical groups might actually be able to write things off. 
they might take income as they earn it instead of income as when they collect it. Now, if a doctor is owed a thousand dollars, okay, and he hasn't collected it, there's no receivable. There's nothing. There's a future earnings is what it is. So he doesn't have any asset whatsoever. All he has or she has is a potential income, potential earnings. So there's nothing to write off. Now, if they did take income upon billing or on an accrual basis, then they, of course, would take the $100. They would sell the debt to me for, they'd take $1,000. They'd sell the debt to me for $100. And they would write off the balance of nine, you know, $900. And then that would be the way they'd work. So, um, so they would only pay taxes, so to speak, on the 100 bucks they made and get that off their books. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. If, I guess I uh, oversimplified it, which is a habit that I've got. Uh, Michael is full aware of that, but it's good for everybody to understand that, uh, you know, as if that is something that, again, uh, for all the practices out there that are like, man, I just want to clean this up, certainly is an option as well. You know, the um, hospitals, you know, for example, they will, there are some hospitals like uh, New York Presbyterian, for example, that will just bend over backwards to help their patients. Yep. No matter what, if they call them up and say that I'm making less than two times the poverty level then it goes into charity care or they write it off if they have to. These are special instances of companies that are caring so deeply about their patients. You hear a lot about you know, garnishments and on bank accounts and on income, you know, your earnings. Now, some of those things are happening because states own these hospitals and they demand that they go through their attorney general and collect on every amount that's owed. Now, unfortunately, some of these people were charity care eligible. They've got to do a better job of checking. They only have approximately 270 days with which to identify a person that qualifies for charity care, and then they can reverse the billing. Because a charity care situation is there is no bill. No bill is created. No future earning is, is set. It is just charity care, and that's what it is. Now, after 270 days, they don't put it back into charity care. It's now bad debt. Now, a hospital can't say to the world, hey, I have this tax deduction you gave me, world. It's worth $70 billion a year. And I'd like to qualify for that by showing you how much bad debt I have for people that really qualified for charity care. And guess what? The government says, no, sorry. You had to qualify them you know, before. Can't do it now. That's just bad debt. You get no benefit for that whatsoever. And that's a little bit harsh, I think. Yeah. And they're, they're doing a lot of good and it doesn't show up. So that's another issue. But if they donated their debt after that time that they had to change it back to charity care, they'd actually get credit. This is obviously just a, such a complicated topic. I'm thrilled, thrilled to know that there are organizations like yours out there trying to make a positive impact. We've been fortunate enough to have some very, I'll say like good-willed people that, that, are, that are seeking to change healthcare in very positive ways. And obviously the way that we pay for healthcare in America, the way that we collect on healthcare in America, there's lots of changes that need to happen. Mr. Antico, thank you so much. Again, everybody, this is RIP Medical Debt is the organization. We will have links in the show notes. But again, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
And uh, I, I wish you the absolute best. This is such a great organization, and I'd love to see what's happening here. Yeah, have a great day, and, and thanks for everything. What I'm going to do for your show is I'm going to abolish $1 million of debt in your show's name as a thank you. Thank you. Thank That's you. just awesome. That's just an awesome feeling. Thank you so much. This is just a great thing. Everybody have a great day. Sorry we ran long, but it was obviously important that we ran a little longer on this particular podcast. Thanks again for tuning in to the Paradigm Shift of Healthcare. This program is brought to you by P3 Inbound, marketing for ortho, spine, and neural practices. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.